This program is brought to you by Preserve Gold, the number one precious metals IRA provider. Call 855-962-3322. Weapons of mass destruction may be on the table for a certain Indo-Pacific island. Reports say Taiwan could be in talks to come under Washington's nuclear umbrella. That would trigger the U.S. to retaliate in kind if Taiwan were to come under nuclear attack from Beijing. For decades, the U.S. nuclear umbrella has shielded Japan, South Korea and Australia. There are mixed reactions to the reported proposal, some saying it would help boost Taiwan's security, while others are more cautious. Welcome to China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Weapons of mass destruction that could soon be part of a plan to protect Taiwan. Recent comments from Taiwan's foreign minister seem to suggest just that Taiwan could be under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. I think it's unacceptable for Taiwan that any country would want to use nuclear weapons to threaten us. And because of that, we have been in talks with friendly countries that have similar pursuits. As for the discussions we had with the United States, it's inappropriate for me to give details. The U.S. has agreements to retaliate in kind if allies come under nuclear attack. For decades, the U.S. nuclear umbrella has shielded Japan, South Korea and Australia, as well as New Zealand and all NATO member countries. But the reported proposal is getting mixed reactions, with some saying it would help boost Taiwan's security, while others voice concern. Taiwan has pledged not to develop weapons of mass destruction and would largely be reliant on overseas help if China attacked. If Taiwan were to come under the U.S. nuclear umbrella, it would mean Washington could respond in kind to a nuclear attack, but it does not include deploying atomic weapons on the island. China, meanwhile, has been expanding its nuclear arsenal with more than 400 warheads. Beijing has repeatedly threatened to take over Taiwan with force if necessary. That's despite Communist China having never ruled Taiwan. Elon Musk is in China. The Tesla CEO meeting with China's foreign minister, Qinggan, on Tuesday. China is Tesla's second largest market after the United States, and its Shanghai plant is the electric car maker's largest production hub. Musk's visit comes as the electric car maker grapples with multiple issues. That includes heated competition with Chinese automakers. China's foreign minister, Qinggan, says his country aims to create a better environment for companies like Tesla. While Musk notes that China and U.S. interests are deeply intertwined, inseparable like conjoined twins, adding Tesla is against decoupling and would like to expand its businesses in China. That's according to a readout from China's foreign ministry. Beijing's welcome to Musk spells a contrast with other foreign companies. Recently, its clampdown on Western consulting firms are sending a chill in the American businesses operating in China. China recently raided two American firms, Capvision and Mintz. Another U.S. consulting giant, Bain & Company, said Chinese police questioned staff at its Shanghai office. So what might happen to Tesla going forward as Beijing remains poised to continue its clampdown on Western firms in China? John Pelson, author of Wireless Wars, breaks it down for us. Take a listen. This is a really, really smart guy. You can't argue that. Elon Musk is a smart dude. And he probably figures China's not going to get the drop on him. They're not going to get the better of him. 
The, the problem is Musk thinks of everything in terms of innovation and business, and he's really, really good at both. And he thinks they're not going to be able to beat me at this. China's not playing that game. This is a game of, of hegemony, world influence, and domination. And Musk can, can win his innovation game against China. But if they get, in the end, what they want, which is uh, reliance, dependency on China, uh, influence on American companies of great importance, uh, China can get what it's looking for here. I mean, they, I don't think they can get access to SpaceX or Starlink through the Tesla operations, but there's no question they get access to the company that controls it and the people that control SpaceX and Starlink. They can have influence and, and have leverage on him and his companies. And that's where the, the worry for me really comes. If he's really killing it in China, selling a lot of cars and buying a lot of batteries and inputs, you, you don't want the, the guy who's making the rockets that, that are sending us to the moon and Mars to have any uh, undue influence from China. John Pelson, thank you so much. It's great being here. It's official. Beijing is turning down Washington's request for defense talks this weekend. Here's the Pentagon's reaction. A thumbs down from Beijing. China has rejected a U.S. proposal for a meeting between the two nations' defense chiefs. The Pentagon earlier requested that the U.S. defense secretary meet with his Chinese counterpart at a security forum in Singapore this weekend. China's defense chief Li Shangfu has been on Washington's blacklist for over five years. The Trump administration sanctioned Li in 2018 over purchase of Russian arms, including an Su-35 combat aircraft and an S-400 surface-to-air missile system. In response, China says that there will be no open dialogue as long as those sanctions remain in place. Despite the refusal, the Pentagon said it won't stop Washington from maintaining open lines of military-to-military -military communication with Beijing. But getting the Chinese regime to talk is no easy task. A top U.S. defense official illustrated the challenge when it comes to reaching the Chinese side. Admiral Aquilino is the man overseeing America's Indo-Pacific Command. Here's what he said at a panel last week. There is a technical connection via the defense telephone line that could be used. Now, that said, uh, if there were an event, I can tell you I would pick up the phone and dial it. Uh, I'm not sure anybody would answer it on the other side. He added that he's repeatedly asked to speak with his Chinese counterparts, something Beijing hasn't approved. A deal to fight fentanyl trafficking. Mexico's president says his nation is closing in on an agreement with Beijing, noting that at the same time, he'll continue cooperating with the U.S. Here's his announcement. We are about to establish an agreement between the Chinese government and the government of Mexico, especially with the Mexican Attorney General's office, to prevent the entry of fentanyl. Mexico says it's cracking down on the synthetic opioid trade. In a press conference, Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador explained his country would continue to cooperate with the U.S. in the fight against drugs. We will do so for humanitarian reasons, because it causes a lot of harm. We have already offered cooperation to legislators from the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. To do that, talks with China are crucial. Beijing has repeatedly denied that illegal fentanyl trafficking happens between China and Mexico. But the U.S. says fentanyl precursors from China are processed into the drug in Mexico and that most of the fentanyl in the U.S. enters the country through the southern border. The drug is used in hospitals for pain relief and is highly addictive. 
Illegally made versions of it often get laced into other drugs due to its potency and low cost to produce. Combating it has become a key priority for U.S. agencies. The United States and Mexico have committed to dismantling the fentanyl supply chain and drug cartels in both countries through sanctions. China once again highlighting its territorial claims in the waters around Taiwan. On Saturday, Chinese aircraft carrier the Shandong, accompanied by two other ships, sailed through the Taiwan Strait. That's according to the island's defense ministry. It was reported that the warship traveled north along the median line, which serves as an unofficial barrier between mainland China and Taiwan. Over the previous 24 hours, eight fighter jets were also caught crossing the barrier. Those flights are part of routine action conducted by China since last August. Despite having never ruled Taiwan, the Chinese Communist Party sees the independently governed island as its own territory and aims to take it by force if necessary. Beijing is calling on Tokyo to stop its curbs on semiconductor exports to China. In a Monday statement, China's Commerce Ministry called Japan's decision a wrongdoing that seriously violated international economic and trade rules. Earlier this year, Japan joined the U.S. and the Netherlands on limiting sales of chipmaking technology to China. In March, the nation announced restrictions on export of 23 types of semiconductor manufacturing equipment to its neighbor. Chips remain at the center of the latest tussle between Beijing and Washington. Washington imposed the chip restrictions last year in an attempt to limit China's access to critical technology for military purposes. U.S. officials have since convinced their allies in the Netherlands and Japan, both makers of the world's most advanced semiconductor manufacturing equipment, to join the standoff. Earlier this month, Beijing retaliated by banning the sale of U.S. chipmaker Micron's products to China. China has its own chip manufacturers, but most of them manufacture low- to mid-end processors for home appliances. Beijing taking another step forward in its space race with Washington. China sending three astronauts toward the stars on Tuesday. The crew will remain in orbit for five months, replacing the current astronauts there. It will mark the fifth manned mission to the Chinese space station since 2021. Given the NASA administrator's recent warning about lunar resources, what's really at stake? To find out, we speak with geopolitical analyst Brandon Weikert. He's also the senior editor at 1945.com. Here's his take. Well, uh, first of all, there are plans to get permanent manned settlements on the moon. And they're looking right now at the southern pole of the moon because it's believed that has a lot of unmelted ice. Uh, And so whoever can get to that real estate first and mine that ice, they've just created um, water that can be used to sustain human life. And also you can use that water eventually to build, to to use uh, as rocket fuel so you can create indigenous return flights. And what you're doing when when you engage in that sort of resource harvesting is you're reducing the amount of payload that a crew has to take with them to the moon. If they can just get the resources that are already there, they're 
cutting that payload in half. And then also that means they're cutting the cost of the mission in half. And as I say in my book, Winning Space, being cheap and easy in space is actually a good thing. Uh, and so that's that's what we're looking at. But the problem is those resources are in certain parts of the moon, we think. And whoever gets there first can probably dominate and capitalize on those resources and cut out the other party that they don't want to share those resources with. And given these latest developments out of China, what should the U.S. be doing now? Well, as I've said, what we need to be doing, we're, we're spending money like, uh, you know, with all due respect to the Navy, we're spending money like drunken sailors. So why don't we allocate a trillion dollars, for instance, specifically for a robust uh, massive space uh, moonshot that we will use that money to build the capabilities and uh, marshal the resources and the personnel needed to not just get back to the moon in the next couple of years and to hold the moon, but to go beyond that, to take Mars. China very much wants to take Mars, to take critical strategic points in the asteroid belt. Asteroid belt has asteroids that have a lot of mineable natural resources, uh, mainly rare earth minerals, which are required to build um, modern technology technology. Definitely a lot on the line here. Brandon Weikert, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. The battle for influence in space is already underway. Both Washington and Beijing are eyeing the south pole of the moon for its rich lunar resources. China is also planning for something else, to build a lunar base in the next five years. Right now, there are only two space stations orbiting the Earth. The International Space Station, led by the U.S., Japan and the European Union, and China's Tiangong Station. The U.S. has made it clear it won't let China join the ISS, while Beijing is inviting other astronauts to join its own station. South Korea, seeking to boost influence in a region hotly contested by Washington and Beijing, the Pacific Islands. South Korea's president hosted the country's first summit with leaders from the Pacific Islands on Monday. Here's what he had to say. I hope that South Korea and the Pacific Islands, which are on the same boat in the vast sea of the Pacific Ocean, will sail vigorously for our joint prosperity. Prime Minister Mark Brown is the chair of the 18-member Pacific Islands Forum. He said challenges facing the region are vast and complex. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol launched his administration's Indo-Pacific strategy last year. He pledged to promote a free, peaceful and prosperous region on a rules-based order. That's amid China's aggression in the strategic waters and its economic leverage of small island states. Yun also emphasized trilateral cooperation with Australia and the United States. A decades-long call for justice in China. It began after a petitioner's wrongful death in a black prison. Her daughter is now seeking state compensation, asking the local court to make public an upcoming trial. And just a warning, this story includes footage that some viewers may find disturbing. Last Tuesday, a Chinese student stood outside the Chinese embassy in Tokyo, holding a petition in the rain. In eight days, the case of my mother Li Shulian, who was beaten to death, will go to trial. In 2009, Li Ning's mother Li Shulian attempted to travel to Beijing to file a petition. That was over a lease dispute with officials in eastern China's Shandong province. Like most petitioners in China who tried to reflect their grievances in the nation's capital, Li was blocked and detained by local authorities. 
One month later, Lee's family was told she had died, supposedly by hanging herself. But the family said it wasn't true. Be warned, some viewers may find the following footage disturbing. Photos of Lee's body show bruises reminiscent of beatings and electric shocks. My mother was put in a black jail. Her case didn't go through the judicial process, and she didn't commit any crime. They arrested her on no charges. We were there the day my mother died. We saw bruises all over her body. You can see this photo. For 14 years, Li Ning was fighting to uncover the truth. The case didn't enter the judicial process until 2017. Six officials and security guards involved were sentenced to years in prison. Yet the verdict still found that Li Shulian committed suicide. Li Ning filed an appeal. In 2019, the court held a second trial, but upheld the original ruling. My mother did not commit suicide. I heard the convicted security guards admitted during the first trial. The files made by the prosecutor's office, the court, and other authorities in the video of my mother's autopsy are all faked. Li Ning and her attorney gathered all the evidence to prove the falsification, but the second trial went on behind closed doors. The file contains minutes of officials' meetings on how to arrange my mother's beating. They call it a state secret and didn't allow public hearings. Li Ning requested the state compensation. The case was to be heard on June 1st. Li is asking the court to livestream the trial. She says her efforts won't bring her mother back, but she hopes such tragedies will be stopped. Coming up, what was America's greatest strategic blunder in its relationship with the Chinese Communist Party? And how can Washington fix it? Plus, Beijing's war on religious faith and the influence of Chinese lobbying in the U.S. American thought leaders host Yania Kellick sat down with Nuri Trakel, chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, for more. Those details after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. What was America's greatest strategic blunder in its relationship with the Chinese Communist Party? And how can it be rectified? American thought leaders host Yanni Kellick spoke to Nuri Trakel, chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom for Insight. Born in a Chinese re-education camp, Trakel made his way to the U.S. and now runs the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Let's dive in. Nuri Turkel, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you very much for having me. You know, when you were on last, we were talking about your book, No Escape, um, talking about being born in communist China in a camp yes. and making it to America and becoming a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act lawyer in the process, an unbelievable journey. And lately you've been doing something frankly, very topical, which is you took on running the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Right. And it's the annual report time. Yes. And uh, why don't we just start there? Just tell me a little bit about what this is, what this organization is, because we have to keep kind of reminding folks. Yes. And then also, you know, what you found. The U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom um, it, it was established in 1999. The commission um, is an independent uh, federal government agency that uh, reports uh, religious freedom violations around the world and makes policy recommendations to the U.S. President, uh, Secretary of State, uh, and Congress. 
We have nine commissioners uh, appointed by both party uh, leadership, uh, president and uh, congressional leadership. In this year's report, we highlighted uh, China again. Since 1999, USERF has been recommending, uh, with the support of the U.S. State Department, uh, designating China as a country of particular concern. Uh, you know what happened in, in, um, in 1998 onward. Instead of uh, uh, making it better for people of faith in China, China has been waging war on people of faith. As a result, the CCP turned itself into a genocidal regime today. You know, it's kind of unbelievable. You know, of course, in 19, 1999, the CCP began uh, persecuting the Falun Gong practitioners. You know, sort of 70 to 100 million people became illegal overnight. Yeah. Right? And it's, it can be hard for people to grasp. You know, this is something like one in, possibly even one in 13 Chinese suddenly become illegal, suddenly, you know, to be eradicated according to the words of the dictator at the time. It seems to make no sense. In fact, I often get asked that question. Why do you think, why do you think they did it? Right? It's a great question and legitimate question. It's an important question for American people to understand. In the 1990s, uh, our government made a huge mistake delinking human rights from the uh, trade uh, negotiation or discussion, helped to get China into the WTO. That kind of paved the, paved the way for human rights, religious freedom issues to, to being pushed to the side. As a result, the business interest, uh, American and global, have much more uh, important role with China, uh, influence over Chinese uh, practices. So that made it even more difficult to um, ad uh, advocate religious freedom for uh, repressed, oppressed um, religious groups like the Falun Gong practitioners, the Tibetan Buddhists, Chinese Catholics, and Uyghur Muslims. And the key question is this, uh, why do they hate uh, people of faith so much? The short answer is that China, uh, Chinese communist leadership uh, sees uh, people of faith as a potential threat for political upheaval. And then second reason is the Chinese Communist Party sees um, or perceives religious practitioners uh, with a group of people with uh, uh, showing signs of disloyalty to the party uh, that e eventually they believe will undermine Communist Party's uh, power. So they don't say it publicly. They have uh, rosy pictures. They have nicely written constitution. They have uh, religious affairs regulations, but that has been only in paper. So the international community uh, bears some responsibility, helping Chinese to take it from a religious persecution, human rights abuse to today's nightmare that is a genocidal regime. Well, let's talk about this just very briefly. You mentioned something really important to me and something I've talked about in the past as well. The consequences of delinking trade for human rights. It's a strategic blunder. Even though some people, uh, starting from uh, Bush 41, had a good intention to help the Chinese people, thinking that helping China to become economically prosperous, um, uh, helping them with the technology, helping them with the education, uh, the policymakers thought that uh, China will become one of us or member of a uh, free world. Uh, the opposite has happened. Instead of us changing them, they are changing us. So that's something that need to be reminded of the American policymakers and general public. Even though some people uh, initiated, promoted, pushed for that policy agenda, but uh, we have to recognize it, it has been a miserable failure. To the Chinese Communist Party, two things are very important. To watch the full episode, check out American Thought Leaders on Epoch.tv. 
That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.